Well, turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament scriptures. I'm excited about this series that we're doing this year through the book of Romans. We introduced it just last week, and I want to continue uh, starting that series today by looking at the first passage in the book. Now, we read this passage last week, but we didn't dig deep into it. We used it more of a, as a springboard to overview the book. Today, I want to actually dig into this opening paragraph. We actually preached some of these verses last summer when we were looking at uh, the gospel and what is a Christian and how does that connect to our identity as Christians and the life of our church. I actually looked at some of these verses, but now I want to look at the whole paragraph in the context of this series in Romans. So I'm going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and let us hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was the descendant of David, and who, through the Spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you. From God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. J.I. Packer was a famous Christian theologian who died just two years ago at the age of 93. He wrote classic works such as Knowing God and Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And I'm sure many of you have read some of those books and you enjoyed Packer's ministry. We studied Knowing God on Wednesday nights in my first year here. Now, growing up, Packer was not antagonistic towards Christianity. In fact, he regarded it as probably true, but of little significance. So not opposed to the faith outwardly, but not a follower of Jesus. But as he grew up and as he got, I think, into his college years, he started reading C.S. Lewis, and that piqued his interest in Christianity and viewed himself as doctrinally orthodox, not that he disagreed with and what he read, but something seemed to be missing from his experience of the faith. And as he listened to a sermon on conversion, the following picture took shape in his mind. Here's how his biographer describes it. He was looking through a window into a room where some people were partying, enjoying themselves by playing games. As he watched, he found he could understand the rules of the game they were playing, but he was outside while they were inside. And Packer recalled grasping his situation with crystalline clarity. He needed to come in. And Packer did. He came inside. And he credits that moment when he became a Christian. We could turn that illustration on its head this morning. You're inside right now if you're listening to the broadcast, but maybe some of you, especially children, are looking outside and you wish you could be out there. You, you, you can see it, but you're not participating in it. Well, don't worry. It won't be too long before you can return 
uh, to the fun outside. But you can get the point, can't you? There's a difference between looking at something and seeing something and actually participating in it. And Christian history contains a lot of stories like that when it comes to people becoming Christians, getting saved, getting converted. John Wesley, who was already serving the church as a minister, recounts that while listening to a talk on Romans, he felt his heart strangely warmed. And what he means is as he heard the information again, that was the moment when everything clicked and he trusted in the message. C.S. Lewis recounts riding with a friend to the zoo. And at the beginning of the trip, he did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but by the end of the trip, he did. Something in his thinking or the conversation along the way, the dots finally connected, the light bulb came on, and Lewis made a commitment to Christianity. John Calvin describes his conversion similar. And all of those stories help define how I want to approach our passage this morning. Paul, in this opening passage of Romans, which is his greeting to the readers, he focuses on the gospel. And he anticipates the themes that he will develop throughout this book. And his greeting on one level looks just like any other greeting in a letter in the ancient world, except... Paul's here is significantly longer. He's expanded his greeting in order to signal at the beginning the important topics that he will unpack throughout the letter. Already in the opening greeting, Paul will urge these Romans to know the gospel and to make the right response to the gospel. And so as we consider this passage, we should consider our relationship to the gospel. Are you like some of the men I referred to earlier? You're in general agreement with Christianity, but you haven't yet joined the game. Or perhaps you are a Christian and you would say you believe the truths of the gospel, but maybe when you look at parts of your life, the gospel doesn't really define you. It doesn't really control you. Or maybe you agree with the gospel, you're loyal to it, but there are other issues that have become more important or more exciting than the gospel. Well, this opening passage addresses all of those needs. So let's work through it together now. Even though you're at home and I'm here, let's work through the passage together and let's consider our relationship to the gospel. And in order to do that, let me ask you five questions. First, do you exist for the gospel? Do you exist for the gospel? We'll go big on the first question. In this opening verse, Paul defines his whole existence with reference to the gospel. And we touched on some of this last week, so I'll be brief here. But I want you to notice once again how verse 1 funnels to the gospel. Paul writes, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul names himself and then describes himself with three terms. First, he is a servant, or better yet, a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Obviously, slavery as a whole is a negative image, but Paul uses the word here to highlight one idea. 
that sense of subjection to a superior. Paul is under Jesus' ownership, Jesus' control. And like a bond servant in that culture, he is obedient, he is devoted to his master. And second, because God owns Paul, God has called him to be an apostle. One sent out, sent by God to proclaim the good news. And that flows into the third and most specific description. Paul is set apart for the gospel of God. God chose Paul and dedicated and appointed him to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's whole existence is bound up with the gospel. Now you may say, okay, that's fine. That's Paul. I don't have to be like that. But look at what Paul says in verse 6. You also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And there's that word again, called. God called Paul and he has called the Romans as well. God has laid claim on Paul and he has laid claim on the Romans. And so Paul uses this letter opening not merely to describe himself and his authority, but to highlight the status and the responsibility of the Roman Christians as well. One author puts it like this, Just as God called Paul to be an apostle, so God had called them to be holy. So you may not be called to full-time Christian ministry. But God calls all of his people, everyone he calls to salvation, he calls to serve him and to exist for the gospel. In fact, the word apostle, it is used in scripture generally. There are capital A apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, the 12. And then there are lowercase a apostles, other Christians who are commissioned and sent on a specific mission. And we'll return to this theme of the Romans and their identity toward the end of the passage. But Paul starts strong. At the outset, he says the gospel should define our existence. So it doesn't. Two, do you focus on the gospel? Do you focus on the gospel? And I want to talk a little bit for a moment here about how we read the Bible, how we view scripture. Paul begins to elaborate on the gospel in verse 2. He writes, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. If you were outlining, verse 1 announces that topic, the gospel. Verses 2 and 3 and 4 will make certain statements describing the gospel. And here Paul relates the gospel to the Old Testament Scriptures. And as far as Paul is concerned, the Old Testament as a whole bears witness to Christ and his gospel. And as Paul makes his way through Romans, this is something you can look for as you read and study the book, he will cite and allude to the Old Testament constantly. And he will show how those scriptures are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In many ways, Romans is a sermon where Paul is preaching the Old Testament, showing how it's fulfilled in Christ. And that's one of the way he deals with some of the suspicion from the congregation. How can you know I'm trustworthy? Well, look at how the Old Testament is fulfilled 
in Christ. Now, not every Jew read the Old Testament like Paul. In fact, many did not. And so we have to wonder, why did Paul come to such radically different Christ-centered conclusions about the meaning of the Old Testament, why are they so different from his Jewish contemporaries? They're all reading the same Bible, right? Yes. But one of the differences was which priorities controlled their reading of the text. What, what set of lenses did they have on as they came to the Old Testament? And let me illustrate what I mean from later in Romans. In Romans 9, if you want to turn there, you can just probably just flip in a few pages or, or swiping up a bit uh, on your phone. If you look at Romans 9, verses 31 and 32, Paul writes this, Romans 9, beginning in verse 31. The people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. And notice they pursued the law, but didn't reach their goal. Look also at chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination or the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. You see, when the Jews read the Old Testament, they heard mainly the voice of the law saying, the person who does these things will live by them. Paul will cite that in the very next verse, Romans 10.5. The law and its call to obey, that was the big principle. That was the main principle that shaped their whole understanding of the Old Testament. But Paul sees a bigger principle in the Old Testament. One that takes priority over the law's call to obey. And that is the priority of faith in God's saving purposes and the culmination of those purposes in Christ. And Paul doesn't just get that because, well, I like that better. He gets it from Abraham, who believed and was justified, who believed God's promise of the seed and was justified before there was even a law given at Sinai, the priority of faith. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not opposed to the law. In fact, in its way, the law bears witness to that promise. The law should lead you to that conclusion that you need to be justified by faith. But that's what they missed. They focused exclusively on the law's commands to obey, and they lost sight of God's larger purposes, and they went down a dead-end street rather than making their way to the main highway. And the beauty of the gospel in Romans is that Paul says, look, what God intended to do through the law, he has done through the righteousness, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how Paul read the Old Testament as opposed to his Jewish contemporaries. Now, it took getting knocked off his donkey by the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road to open Paul's eyes to the right way to read the Old Testament. And I don't know that any of us will get such an experience, but we do have the record of Paul 
writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show us how to rightly read our Bibles so that Christ comes to the center. And so we should ask ourselves, when we approach the Bible or church or religion, do we see Christ and his gospel at the center of it all? Or do you read the Bible with some other big picture in mind? Maybe you read the Bible hoping, all right, this is what you want to do. You've got some plan. You're like, all right, I'm going to open the Bible, and maybe I'll find their God confirming what I want to do, spiritual justification for what I want to do today. Maybe a little less cynically, but perhaps even well-meaning. Maybe you open the Bible and you're like, well, God, just, just give me something to do. Just tell me what you want me to do today. I just want to do what is right. So just give me a simple command to follow. Or maybe you read the Bible and you're trying to read your own life story into it, or the history of your life, or where you live, or, or what have you. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that any of those things can't happen or don't happen when we read the Bible. What I'm saying is, ultimately, God's Word is about so much more. It's about the good news of God's saving action in Christ. And when you put that lens over the Bible, then you will get proper direction for your life. Then you will find the good path in which to walk. But it starts by focusing on Christ. Third question. Do you love the Christ of the gospel? Now Paul's going to move the other direction in the emphasis of verses 3 through 4. Here he describes how the gospel focuses on Christ. And just like verse 1, these two verses build to a culmination. So Paul writes, the gospel is regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now at first reading, it may sound like Paul is making two equal statements. Jesus is human, son of David, and Jesus is divine, Son of God. Now that is certainly true theologically, but I don't think that is the point Paul is making here. Instead, he is tracing the movement from Jesus' humiliation to his exaltation, and that authenticates him as Lord of the world. So Jesus was born the Son of David. That's a low status in Jesus' day. That's who Jesus is according to the flesh and his weak and frail existence. But having lived obediently in that lowly state and having obeyed even unto death, he has now been appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And he has received the title Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the movement. Of the two verses. And there's so much more there, but let me just highlight what messages that would send to Paul's readers. And if you can remember from last week, think of the two stories we mentioned last week that Romans is telling the Jewish story and the Roman story. So, what message would this send to the readers? Well, first, there would be the Jewish significance of Jesus. When Paul calls Jesus God's son, that is a title often used for the kings in the Old Testament. God called kings his sons because he had chosen to be, he had chosen them 
to be kings. It's like the way an adoptive father would choose to adopt a son. I've made you my son. I've made you this king. In fact, verse 7 probably alludes to Psalm 2-7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Verse 4 doesn't cite it, but it echoes it. And of course, that psalm goes on to describe God's promise to the son that he will make the nations his inheritance. So Paul is acknowledging that Jesus fulfills that song. Jesus fulfills that theme of the Old Testament of God's son reigning over the world. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we should view Jesus as a son God adopted. For verse 3 describes him as already God's son when he came as a descendant of David. No, rather the movement is this, he is God's son. And he humbles himself obediently unto death. And so God has now declared him son of God in power. You could put hyphens between each word there. It's one phrase. Son of God in power. And you rule over the world. So Israel, your story is fulfilled in Jesus. So what would that say to the Romans? That's, that's what it would say to the Jews. Israel, your story is fulfilled. But what would that say to the Romans? Well, the Romans believed in a gospel of God's Son. One author writes, according to an inscription from 9 BC found in Priene, just south of Ephesus in Asia Minor, here's the inscription. The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of the joyful messages or gospel messages which have gone forth because of him. The God in that citation, that is the Emperor Augustus. And the joyful messages, those are the glad tidings of peace and prosperity that he has supposedly brought to the Roman world. And did you notice how many key words in that description overlap with key Christian vocabulary? Well, the Romans had a gospel. They trusted in it. But Paul writes to challenge that gospel. He writes to challenge the world's understanding of good news. The world's good news, excuse me, the good news is not Caesar's birthday. It is the fact that God is savingly intervened in the birth of Christ. That's the birthday. That's good news. And notice, by the way, when Paul challenges Rome, it's not a debate over who believed in God. As if, yeah, the Romans were atheists and, you know, the Christians weren't. They didn't believe in God. The Christians did. No, they both believed in God. Now, they had different, uh, granted, different ideas of what it meant uh, for a God to be a God. But they believed in God. And they believed in salvation. They believed in peace. And they believed in joy. But you know what? One group's definition of the gospel was right. And the other's was wrong. And the difference was the revelation of God in Christ and his triumphant resurrection from the dead. That's what makes the difference between the true gospel and every false gospel. Jesus is the first to rise, to rise in the way that the Old Testament promised when this new age and new world came. Jesus broke into the middle of history with the new age when he rose from the dead. And he says that new age is here. But you can't participate it and you can't understand the gospel and you can't enter into it without 
reference to me. You've got to do it through me. So do you love him? Do you worship him? Do you submit to him? Two more questions. Are you transformed by the gospel? When we start getting into verse 5, this is where Paul shifts some of his focus from uh, himself to his readers, showing now how they're transformed by the gospel. Verse 5 reads, Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So Jesus is Lord of the world. Fulfill Psalm 2, challenge of the Romans. Jesus is Lord of the world, and he's exercising that authority. But how? Is he going to put down Rome? No. He's exercising his authority by calling the Gentiles to obey the faith. That's how the Son inherits the nations. Now that's grace, isn't it? Jesus uses his authority to save his enemies. Now I want you to notice that phrase Paul uses to describe our response to the gospel. He calls it the obedience of faith. And we would ask, okay, is that the obedience which produces faith? Faith leads to obedience? Or is it the obedience defined as faith, the obedience which is faith? Well, grammatically, you can make a strong argument for the second, that it is the obedience which is faith. The fundamental form of obedience that we render to God and the gospel is faith, not good works. God calls you to obey. What do you mean? He calls you to believe. And as we will see in these opening chapters, Paul will place faith alone, righteous by faith alone. It's right at the heart of his presentation of the gospel in Romans. So that works. It works dramatically. It works with the first chapters of Romans. But you also have to ask yourself, well, if Paul meant faith, why use the phrase obedience of faith? Why not just simply write Faith. And I'll grant you, obedience cannot save us. Yes, the beginning of Romans focuses on faith alone. But Paul does go on to show that obedience flows from faith. That it is an essential outworking of our union with Christ, of being justified by faith. You could even argue Paul is going to say there, all right, you're united to Christ. And two things flow out of that. One, faith, which leads to justification. And two, resurrection power, which leads to holy living. That's the first eight chapters of Romans, basically. So obedience and faith, they mutually interpret one another. And so I think we need to view the phrase as trying to express both of those ideas. Here's how one author puts it. Paul used this phrase to refer both to the obedience of believing the gospel and to the obedience that arises from the powerful reign of God's grace in the believer's life. Another author writes this, obedience always involves faith and faith always involves obedience. The two should not be equated, compartmentalized, or made into separate stages of Christian experience. Paul called men and women to a faith that was always inseparable from obedience. For the Savior in whom we believe is nothing less than our Lord. 
And yet he also calls us to an obedience that can never be divorced from faith. For we can obey Jesus as Lord only when we have given ourselves to him in faith. And last question. Are you resting in the gospel? How does Paul describe such people who obey the faith? He writes in verses 6 and 7, And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you. God has called you to be his holy people. So the priority is on God's action in Christ. That's where we rest. He gives grace and peace to you. You rest in the gospel. And yet also, that resting transforms you. Who you are transforms you. If you have a holy status, then that will look like something in action. We will be transformed by this gospel. Ultimately, who are you? You are in Christ. You may be in Rome, he writes, or you may be in Roebuck or Pauline or Reedville or anywhere else. Ultimately, you are in Christ. So no matter what society tells you, no matter what others tell you, this is who you are. So you rest in that. You trust in that. You enjoy that and then flowing from that, you be defined by your relationship to the gospel. So let's pray as we close. Let's thank God for the gospel. And let me take a moment to pray uh, for our congregation. Father in heaven, we do thank you once again for your son, Jesus our Lord, and for the Holy Spirit who has called us to salvation. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can be in Christ by grace, through faith, not of ourselves, not of works, lest any of us should boast. And that in Christ you have created us for good works that we should do. You've prepared them and prepared us to walk in them. Father, we thank you so much for mercy. We thank you so much for grace. We thank you that we woke up this morning. We still had power and we can be in warm places during uh, the snow and ice storm. Thank you that we have technology to still hear uh, the preaching of your word on your day. And may we spend the extra time we have today well. May we enjoy a day of rest as you give it to your people. May we also seek you and worship and love and serve you and serve others. Father, I do pray for our congregation. I pray to keep everyone safe. Again, we pray the power would stay on. People would be warm. You would be able to enjoy uh, the winter weather. And I pray that you would care for others in this community, especially who may have serious needs, that you would meet those needs, you would keep folks safe, you'd have, help us to have our eyes open to those who may be in need and to serve and love well. I pray as schools have to make uh, decisions about returning to school tomorrow or Tuesday, that you would just go with them and give them wisdom, and that for those who have to work, uh, perhaps as hospital workers or other workers like that, uh, that you would keep them safe and show them mercy. Lord, we do thank you so much for the many mercies of God in Christ. And we pray that you would help us to live as a community of Christians here in Roba and Spartanburg County and beyond. To be your people here in this society, just as you had your people there in Rome. Help us to be salt and light and to bear witness to the gospel and to know how to speak your words to those who are outside. I pray you'd bring many into 
these walls. And I pray you would save people in our community and in our families. I pray for those who lead us on a local and state and national level, that you would show mercy to their souls, that you would save them. And short of saving them, that you would restrain wickedness, that we would not uh, pursue things that anger you and that displease you, and that we would seek to civic duty, whatever that looks like upon your word in this country, that we would do it and that we would do it rightly. Show mercy to us. May we be able in this state and country to live in safety, to have what we need. I pray for the welfare of our city, as you told Jeremiah to do so all those years ago. For when they prosper, so will your people. You would enable us to have access to the goods we need to live uh, and for education and for other things. And that you might, in mercy, uh, that you might, in wrath, remember mercy and show mercy to your creation. Help us then as Christians to diligently pursue our callings, and may we be free and able to do that, and may we do it humbly and for the glory of God and for the beauty of the gospel. Go forward now with us today to know your great grace and to be able to regather again the next Lord's Day. And we pray these things in Jesus' We pray also those who might be sick, several in our congregation still sick or are still dealing with COVID or haven't got it this week. Remember them. Uh, may it be a mild case, may it be a quick case. Uh, show mercy to them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.